I'm going to invite you to uh, turn in your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 11. Anybody know what I'm going to preach on this morning? I might fool you. Mark chapter 11 tells us the story of when Jesus cursed the fig tree. And the next morning they walked by there, the disciples walked by with him, and they saw that the fig tree was dried up from the roots. We'll start uh, picking up the story in verse 20. And in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, calling to remember it, said unto him, Master, behold, the fig tree which thou cursest is withered away. And Jesus answering saith unto them, Have faith in God. For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe, apparently in his heart, that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore I say unto you, what things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you shall have them. And when you stand praying, forgive, if you have aught against any, that your Father also, which is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father, which is in heaven, forgive your trespasses. I want to talk to you this morning on a start a new series on overcoming offenses. I'm not going to talk about about the subject of faith. I'm going to point out and use this as a beginning point that Jesus identified one of the greatest hindrances to faith was unforgiveness. Now, hold your finger here. Well, you, no, you don't have to. We're not coming back to this. Turn back with me to Mark chapter, uh, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 6. And I want you to see something else here. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 9, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he said, After this manner, therefore, pray ye, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now notice Jesus has just given what's known as the Lord's Prayer. It's really the disciples' prayer, not the Lord's Prayer. But in in following what is known as, in church circles, the Lord's Prayer, notice the one thing that Jesus identifies and expands upon concerning what he just told them about prayer. Verse 14, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Folks, forgiveness was a very strange concept in Judaism then and today. There is no emphasis placed on forgiveness in the, uh, uh, in the, in the Judaic religion. I'll get, I'll show you another example. Turn with me to back a chapter to Matthew chapter five. Matthew chapter 5 in verse uh, 43. Jesus said, You have heard that it has been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. Well, folks, who said that? Who said love your neighbor and hate your enemy? That is the teaching of the Pharisees. It's the teaching of Judaism. 
The teaching of Judaism is not walk in forgiveness for everybody because Judah, the, the teaching of Judaism, the whole thing about uh, the Jews' religion was that they were the people of God and everybody else was not. That's where they developed the idea, the concept that the, the call to the Gentile world dogs. Because there was one people of God and only one people of God. There was only one covenant that God had with man, and that was through Abraham. Everybody outside of that was without any type of relationship or way to God. And as a result, the Jews would not love their enemies. The Jews would not bring forgiveness to anybody that came against them. God said to Abraham, I'll bless those that bless you, but I'll curse those that curse you. So the whole idea in Judaism was... It's us against the world. Anybody does us wrong, God will get them. And God told them over and over again, he said, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. He's told them that, he's taught them that all throughout history. So Jesus said, you've heard it said that thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. Verse 44, but I say unto you, Jesus is changing things around. He's saying it's a different day than what you've been accustomed to. But I say unto you. Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be children of your Father. Now, the Old Testament is all about being servants of God. It's only through Jesus that we become children of God. So he's saying, here's the the way to make the shift. The difference between the servant of God who loves their neighbor and hates their enemies and the children of God is forgiving and loving your enemies. Walking in love, walking in forgiveness. That you may be children of your Father, which is in heaven, for He makes His Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love them which love you, what reward have you? Do not even the publicans do the same. And if you salute your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the publicans or the tax collectors do the same thing. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. What I want you to see, folks, is that there is a difference between forgiveness in the Gospels and in the Old Testament and for the church. Now, we just see in these two examples, Matthew chapter 11, Mark chapter 6, where Jesus said, now Jesus ought to know what he's talking about, I would think. Jesus said, if you forgive, then God forgives. If you don't forgive, God won't forgive you. Is that the way it still works today? Well, let's look over at Ephesians chapter 4 and see. These are letters written to the church, to those who have accepted Jesus' sacrifice and made him the Lord of their lives. And notice what Paul said. Let's just start reading in verse um, 29. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 29. He said, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but, or only, that which is good to the use of edifying, that means to build people up, that it may minister grace unto the hearers, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. Now, I want you to notice that Paul says, by the Holy Ghost, that there is a way to keep the Holy Ghost from being active in your life. You can be spirit-filled, you can you can have the, the, the Spirit of God upon you, you can be anointed, but you can grieve Him through your actions and your words. Now, what does it mean if we're grieved? What does it mean to grieve someone? Well, if we lose a loved one and we're, we're grieving, we go through a period of grieving, basically what it does is it paralyzes us to some degree or another. 
in some extreme cases, people just shut down. They just stop living their lives. They just, they just completely shut down. In, in uh, less extreme cases, we go through the motions, but it robs us of our passion for life and it robs us of our focus. So basically what it does when it's talking about grieving the Holy Spirit is the way, the same thing that we experience in grieving, uh, the loss of a loved one or anything else. It's that we lose our real emphasis and the way that we're supposed to and God wants us to live our lives. It shuts us down to some degree or another. Well, that's what it's saying about the Holy Ghost. He doesn't leave you, but you can shut him down in your life. There's no question in my mind that a lot of Christians live their lives grieving the Holy Ghost. Now, they're not grieved. Grieving the Holy Ghost is different than us being grieved. We know because it's our loss. We sense grief because of our loss of a loved one. But you can grieve the Holy Ghost and not be grieved yourself. You can grieve the Holy Ghost just through ignorance and wonder why God's not doing things on your behalf. Yet Jesus told us that the number one hindrance to the prayer of faith operating successfully is unforgiveness. So we can be in, in a position where we grieve the Holy Spirit wondering why isn't God answering our prayers. In my opinion, that's where a lot of the church world is, maybe the majority of the church world. They can't figure out why God's not answering their prayers. And it probably comes down to something like this, the way that they're living. And I'm not talking about some major sin. I'm not talking about their stealing or lying or, or doing things like that. But through corrupt communication or some of these other things that are listed, they have grieved the Holy Ghost so he's not active in their lives. Bible says, Paul said in Galatians chapter 6, that faith works by love. Well, that means faith won't work without it. So if we're not walking in love, and forgiveness is a big part of walking in love, if we're not walking in love in our lives, then even though we may be ex- uh, expressing faith from our hearts, that faith will be inactive and inoperable. And that grieves God because he wants you to receive those things that you desire and those things that you believe for. So he said, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but or only that which is good to the use of edifying. In other words, watch your mouth, watch your words, that it may minister grace to the hearers and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. Now that just means we have a seal of the Holy Spirit until Jesus comes back for the church and then we'll receive our redeemed bodies. The fullness of redemption will be accomplished because our bodies will be changed just like our spirits have been changed. We'll receive new bodies just like we received new spirits when we gave Jesus our heart. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted. Isn't it interesting that Paul would have to tell them by the Holy Ghost, tell Christians by the Holy Ghost to be kind to each other. Be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Here's the part I want you to see, last part of verse 32. Forgiving one another so God will forgive you? No. Forgiving one another even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. Folks, I got to tell you, if me forgiving is the basis for God forgiving me, there are some situations, if I'm living right, there are some situations where I might risk it. Might be worth holding a grudge against certain people. I mean, if I'm living right, if I don't have anything really to be forgiven of, I'm already saved. 
I'm already in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus lives in my heart. So if it's just a matter of me living my life in a right or a moral way or a clean manner or something like that, it might be worth holding a grudge against some people. But that's not the standard now. The standard is forgiving even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. Forgiving even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. Turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 12. This word bitterness that we saw in verse 31 of Ephesians 4 is an interesting word because it literally means poison. Hebrews chapter 12 speaks to this a little bit further. We'll start in verse 14. It says, follow peace with all men and holiness without which uh, no man shall see the Lord. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness, there's that word poison, springing up trouble you and thereby many be defiled. I want you to notice something. Bitterness, which is unforgiveness, taking root, is a poison that will poison not only you but other people. It's a poison that will hold you back in life as well as other people. Now, folks, there's a lot of this kind of stuff that's going on right now in our society, even over the last couple of weeks with this court case with the Trayvon Martin-George Zimmerman trial, or the George Zimmerman trial concerning Trayvon Martin. Now, we're hearing a lot of things in the press. We're hearing a lot of things from a lot of people about racism. This is about race, racial profiling, all this, that, and the other. But to anybody that followed the evidence in the trial, the only thing racial about the whole deal was what Trayvon Martin said on the phone to his girlfriend about George Zimmerman. This is not about race. I know a lot of people want it to be about race, but it's not about race as far as the evidence is concerned. Well, then why in the world are people protesting? Why has this become a racial issue? Why do you have these so-called reverends? Look, I say so-called because what they're saying is it has nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus. Why do you have people calling for protests? How is breaking a store window going to change anything? What's going on is, and and here's what I hear people saying, well, you don't understand the anger that's in the black community. Well, anger about what? About this trial? Again, if you listen to the evidence, it had nothing to do with race. So what about this case, the evidence in this case and this case alone, what about that should stoke anger in the black community or anybody else? No, it's leftover offenses. It's the root of bitterness that goes from experiences past. By the way, the Bible speaks of what these so-called reverends are doing. Let me read something to you from Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16, I think it's beginning in verse uh, 17, yeah. It says, now Paul's speaking by the Holy Ghost, so this is God telling us, this is God warning us. It says, now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. For they are that, they that are such, serve not the Lord our Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. Now, you decide for yourself whether or not that fits, but it seems pretty obvious to me. 
Okay, but then people will say, yeah, but Pastor Mike, you don't understand the black experience in America. No, I don't. I don't. I understand the redneck experience in America. But I don't, I don't understand. I, I, don't under, I haven't experienced the same thing. I haven't done that. But isn't that everybody's cop out? But you don't know what they've done to me? Maybe you don't know the experience of being called a racist for taking a biblical position and point of view where politics is concerned. Maybe you don't have the experience, know the experience of giving your life to help people and have other preachers slander you when you're trying to teach people the truth and get them healed. The point is, we all have different experiences. And the question is very simply this. I'm not called to, to, to understand your experience, and you're not called to understand mine. The fact is, we all have our own experiences to deal with. They're going to be different. Yours may be worse than mine. Mine may be worse than yours. I don't know. But the fact is simply this. Here, This is the real question. What are we as Christians called to do? I don't find a a chapter in the Bible say instructions for white boys. I don't see different instructions for different ethnic groups. I see one set of instructions for Christians. And that set of instructions comes down to very simple one law, and that is love. That means I'm going to have offenses that I'm going to have to deal with. That means you're going to have offenses that you're going to have to deal with too. And don't you be fooled about this for one moment. There's a lot of people that would love for you to get stirred up and take offense with them. The devil would love for you to get involved with other people's stuff so that he can poison you because that's what bitterness does. Bitterness poisons not only the individual, but those with whom they share it. And folks, that's what you got going on. Jesus said that's one of the signs of the ends. He said nation will rise against nation. Literally, that's ethnic group will be against ethnic group. It's one of the signs of the end. Don't expect race relations to get better in America or anywhere else in the world. It's going to get bad. It's going to get worse. It'll continue to get worse. So the question is, what are we as Christians going to do? This is the fact. It's going to get worse. We're not going to have a national conversation about race that does any good whatsoever. Because the people that are having the national conversation about race are motivated by the devil and their own means. Well, that never brings about any positive change. So what are we as Christians going to do? What are we to do? Turn with me over to uh, 1 John chapter 4. John talks about a, a lot about love. Now, church history tells us that, uh, that John was pretty, uh, good about living what he preached. There were, he was, he lived to, to a very old age. Some would usually, or most people agree that uh, they lived into his nineties. And uh, he was certainly the last or the oldest of the apostles that was here on the earth. And he created and caused such a problem for, um, um, the powers that be that they, they tried to get rid of him. They tried to kill him. They tried to boil him in oil, which wouldn't be my first way to go. But they couldn't do it. He wouldn't die. So they wound up exiling him, putting him on a rock, the Isle of Elba. They they put him on the, I'm sorry, the Isle of Patmos. It's Napoleon that went to Elba, I guess. I don't know why I get those confused. Anyway, 
Anyway, they sent him to the Isle of Patmos, some rock out in the middle of the water, where they thought, okay, he can't hurt anybody. Well, there he had visions and wrote letters to the church that are a blessing to us today. You couldn't stop this guy. And everything he talked about was love. Now, notice what John says about love. He says in verse, uh, um, yeah, let's start in verse 16. And we have known, this is John, 1 John 4, verse 16, and we have known and believed the love that God has to us. God is love, and he that dwells in love dwells in God and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. Folks, please notice he says in verse 17 that your love can be perfect. Now, he's on the way. He's living up to it himself. I don't know if he would ever say that he arrived, but in my estimation, he's pretty far down the road. Now, notice what he says about this perfect love. Verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear has torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. Now, when we read that verse of Scripture, we think fear has torment for us. But that's not what the verse is saying. The word torment is a word that is related to punishment. He's saying perfect love casts out fear because fear has to do with punishment. You know the reason, one of the main reasons why we won't forgive other people? Because we're afraid they won't get what's coming to them. We're afraid that God won't really punish them the way that we know they should be punished. That's what this is saying. He's saying, he that feareth, he that that is still looking for punishment, is not made perfect in love. So what does that tell us about the love that we're supposed to walk in, the forgiveness that we're supposed to walk in? It's supposed to be a total forgiveness so that we're not looking for anybody to get theirs anymore. Now, that can be tough. It's one thing to say, the love of God has filled my heart. And therefore, Father, I pray for my enemies, knowing full well that you will pour out the wrath of heaven upon them. John said that's not perfect love. That's tough, isn't it? You know what? You know one of the worst things you can do in forgiving people? Go tell them you forgive them. You know why? Because most of the people you think have done you wrong don't have any clue about what they've done and would deny that they did anything wrong. You just create another set of problems to go to somebody and say, brother, I forgive you. For what? What did I do to you? Well, you said this. That's nothing. You can't be serious. Now you got a whole different set of forgiveness to operate in. You got a whole different set of circumstances to deal with. But perfect love isn't looking for somebody to get theirs. Love covers a multitude of sins. Love doesn't deny that I've been done wrong, but it just says I'm not looking for them to get theirs because of it. Turn with me to Philippians chapter four. Let me show you a verse of scripture here that I'm sure you've never seen before. Philippians chapter four. Um, well, let's just start in verse one. Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for my joy and crown. So stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. 
Now, Paul is, is starting off with some kind of flowery. You guys are great. I love you so much. Be strong in the things of God. Now he's going to try to fix a problem. Verse 2. I beseech Euodius and beseech Synecdoche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. Now, this phrase, of the same mind, is in the Greek. It's about four different words in the Greek that's all put together in one in one phrase. And it literally means, stop arguing. I beseech that these two people would stop their divisions, would stop their quarrels, would stop their arguing. Now, Paul, from wherever he is, writing this, probably Rome, has heard that these two people are still fighting. This must be an ongoing thing. So he says, I beseech that they would stop their disagreements, their argument, their problems with one another. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help these women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers whose names are also in the book of, uh, in the book of life. So he's saying that these are two women that helped him in ministry. These are preachers. Or in some area of ministry, these are people that ought to know better. These are people that should be looked at as being mature in the things of God. And he's saying, I beseech that they would shut up and end their quarrel with each other. Now, how are they going to do that? Verse 4 and 5. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. He's telling you two things, two steps to overcoming offenses that will be of great, great, great benefit to you if you will do them. Number one, rejoice in the Lord all the time. You can't complain about what somebody else has done for you and rejoice at the same time. It's either or. So his first comment is rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. That's one way to quit an argument. The second thing is verse five. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. This word moderation is uh, is a, an interesting word because it's translated in, in uh, some cases gentleness. But it literally means this. It means the opposite of being rigorous. We know of moderation as being temperate, even-keeled, middle-of-the-road as far as your emotions are concerned and so forth. And, and that's certainly true. But there's a, the, it's the opposite. This word in the Greek is the opposite of the word being rigorous. And what he's saying is don't press your advantage. Don't be rigorous in attacking your enemy even if you have a right to do it. It's in action. It's what we know of as graciousness in the English language. To be gracious is not to press against somebody even if you have a right to. Love covers a multitude of sins, the Bible says. It overlooks a lot of things that are done wrong to it. You know, it's interesting because the Bible talks about grace and mercy together in a lot of places. You know what grace is? Grace is where God gives you what you don't deserve. You know what mercy is? Mercy is where God doesn't give you what you do deserve. And the love of God is both gracious and merciful. God gives you what you don't deserve, and he doesn't give you what you do deserve. And that's what the Bible's talking about, us growing and maturing in perfect love so that we don't hold things against other people. Forgiveness is not ignoring that somebody did you wrong. It's choosing to not hold it against them even when they did. That's why forgiveness has nothing to do with feelings. Forgiveness has everything to do with a choice, a determined choice about behavior. 
Now, the feelings may or may not come depending on what the situation is and how deeply rooted you allow it to be. But forgiveness is about a choice. Forgiveness is about a decision. Okay, I'm going to operate in love. I'm going to walk in love because the Bible says that's what I ought to do. Do I feel like doing it? Not at all. Uh Uh-uh. No way. Turn back with me to Genesis chapter, uh, well, let's start in about Genesis chapter 39. I want to talk to you about the story of uh, Joseph in relation to forgiveness. Because in this respect, at least, Joseph is a, a type of Jesus. I've made this comment before, and I, I, I know how it sounds, and I really don't like how it sounds, but it's true, and so I hope you understand what I'm saying when I say this. Of all the Old Testament examples, all the Old Testament stories, Joseph is the hardest one for me to relate to. Because it's like this guy never messes up. David, like David, handle, I can handle that, you know, fight the giants. I can relate to that. Some of the other stuff in David's life, I can relate to that too. Joseph, who was this guy? And he's the great-grandson of, of Abraham. He didn't even have a law to follow. I mean, this guy doesn't have a, even a Sunday school book to go by. Nothing. The only thing he knows of God and, and the principles of godliness are what he's learned from his great-grandfather Abraham, his father Isaac, or his grandfather Isaac, and his father Jacob. And Isaac wasn't a real sharp guy. Jacob was kind of a liar and swindler. And yet Joseph is a guy that just... He looks perfect to me. But there are some things, there are some underlying things that that, uh, that you can see in the Scripture if you look. Let's talk a little bit about the story of Joseph. You remember how that Joseph had these dreams. He was highly favored of his father. It means there was something about him that drew, him, drew his father to him, much more so than his other children. And uh, he had this coat of many colors, and, and it was, he was, it was his dad's favorite. No two ways about it. And the other... Brothers knew it. There were 12 of them. He was the 11th in line. And the other brothers knew that their dad liked him better. That that was clearly evident by the clothes that he gave Joseph as opposed to what he provided for them. It didn't create for a real healthy family situation. I mean, this is a dysfunctional family. And then Joseph starts having dreams. And he comes out to the field and tells his brothers, hey, guys, I had a dream last night. We were all gathering wheat and, and uh, you know, putting our stalks together. And all of a sudden, my stalks stood up higher than the rest of yours, and yours all bowed down before mine. What a blessing to the other ten. <laughs> Man, Joseph, that is great. Tell us if you get some more of those dreams, would you? And then he says, well, I did have another one. And this time... The sun and the moon and all 11 of you other stars bowed down to me. And even his father got upset about that one. He said, your mother and I are supposed to bow down before you? There's probably a better way he could have gone about communicating that. Or maybe the, the, the wisest thing would have been not to communicate that. Sometimes the things God gives you are just for you, not for other people. So... Jacob, who later becomes Israel, 
says of Joseph, Joseph, uh, these dreams, I'm not sure about these dreams, but you're still my favorite. And so I'm going to put you in charge of keeping an eye on your older brothers. That's another thing that would foster a lot of trust in the family, I guess. And so Joseph readily takes this position. And his brothers can't stand it. This little pipsqueak younger brother has been in, put in charge of all the rest of us. What has he done? And folks, the, the real, the truth is, he's done nothing. He's just daddy's favorite. And so they try to get away from him. They take the flocks to where he can't, doesn't know where they are. But finally he finds them. He asks somebody, I'm looking for my brothers and their flocks. Do you know where they are? Yeah, they were here and then they went down to Dothan. So he starts coming. They see him a long way off. And before he ever gets there, the brothers start plotting against him. And they say, all right. We've had enough of this. We're way away from home now. Nobody would know what happens in the wilderness stays in the wilderness. <laughs> so let's do this. Let's take the guy and kill him and tell daddy that a wild beast got him. Now, now folks, I've got an older brother and we fought like cats and dogs growing up. And I can honestly say that I thought about killing him. (laughs) But I wasn't serious. I didn't go through with it. These guys are, I mean, this is the real deal. They're finally planning to do this. But one of the brothers, I believe it was Reuben, one of the brothers said, oh, let's don't do that. Let's throw him in a pit. We don't have to kill him. Let's just put him in a pit. We'll scare the bejeebers out of him. Well, that's what they do. They throw Joseph in the pit, take his coat, and he and and later on in the story, Joseph talks about how anguished he was, and even the brothers recognize that we didn't listen to the anguish of his soul when he was begging us to let him out of this pit. Then one of the brothers, Judah, sees a caravan coming down the way and says, "Wait a minute, how's it going to profit us to either leave him in the pit or to kill him? Let's make some money off this guy." So they sell him. They sell him to the traders. The traders wind up taking him to Egypt. He winds up being purchased by uh, a captain in Pharaoh's army named Potiphar. And, and that turns out to be not such a bad thing because the Lord prospers him. They take His brothers take the coat, put blood on it, and take the coat back to the father. Now, the, the, the brothers, if you read the story carefully, the brothers are not the one that say Joseph was killed by a wild animal. They took the coat to their father and say, Dad, you're the only one that can tell us for sure, is this Joseph's coat? And that's when Jacob says, oh, my goodness, it is Joseph's coat. I guess a wild animal got him. So they didn't lie to him. They set the lie up. But they really didn't say it. It's going to be interesting later on in the story. So Joseph winds up being in Potiphar's house. God prospers whatever he does. He blesses his hands. And so he winds up being in charge of everything that belongs to Potiphar. But Potiphar's wife starts looking at Joseph and says, boy, you are a good-looking kid. Why don't you come in here? Husband's gone. Why don't you come have sex with me? The Bible says this happened day after day after day, and Joseph kept saying no. It says that he would not lie with her or be with her. In other words, he didn't play word games. He didn't say, well, okay, it would be wrong for us to have sex, but maybe we can fiddle around for a little bit. He resisted. He said, it's not right for me to, to, to do this against my master who's put everything in my hands, and it would be a sin against God for me to do this. How in the world does Joseph, as a 17-year-old kid, how in the world does Joseph have the strength of character 
to hold himself steady in a situation like that. That's why I say I have a little problem with Joseph's story. I believe it to be true, but I have a hard time relating to this guy. I mean, I had years and years of if you do this, God will get you and still had trouble. (laughs) What did Joseph have? This is a real guy, folks. I mean, there's really something to him inside. So, you know the story. She wound up lying to her husband, taking the garment. He had fled to, to get away from her one day. She took his garment and said, he tried to rape me. So Potiphar has him thrown into prison. Well, in prison, the hand of God was still upon him. And so he became in charge of everything that happened in prison. The jailer said, man, you can handle this. Run this for yourself. So he's still being elevated, although being a big dog in prison is not really a great position. He's still in prison. He's still in the dungeon. And then you remember what happens in the story. Pharaoh gets mad at his baker and his butler. And so they come down into the lower prison under Joseph's care. One day they, Joseph sees them and they're all, they're both down in the mouth, sad about something. So he says, what are you upset about? And they said, we both had dreams and we don't know what the dreams mean. And so Joseph said, well, God uses me like this. Tell me what the dreams mean. So he interpreted both the baker and the butler's dream. He interpreted the butler's dream to be in three days, Pharaoh will bring you back into his house and restore your position. The baker hears that and says, oh, wow, these are good dreams. I'll tell him mine too. So he does. And Joseph says, well, your dream means in three days, Pharaoh's going to cut off your head. (laughs) Good news, huh? Now, I want you to see something about this part of the story. Uh, Let me see if I can find it real quick. Um, Genesis chapter 41. Yeah. This is where he's uh, interpreting... The uh, the uh, butler's dream, the cupbearer's dream. Verse 13, he said, Yet within three days shall Pharaoh lift up your head and restore thee into thy place, and thou shalt deliver Pharaoh's cup into his hand after former manner when thou wast his butler. But, verse 14 is what I want you to see. Verse 14, 15. But think on me, or remember me, when it shall be well with thee, and show kindness, I pray thee, unto me. And make mention of me unto Pharaoh, and bring me out of this house. In other words, bring me out of jail, out of dungeon. For indeed I was stolen away out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the dungeon. Now, that seems pretty benign, really, because Joseph is just simply stating facts. He's saying, look, I never did anything wrong. I'm an innocent guy in prison. I know most guys in prison say they are, but I really am. I haven't done anything. I didn't do anything wrong to become a slave in Egypt to begin with. And then I didn't do anything wrong when I was a slave to Potiphar, his servant, to be cast into the dungeon. So remember me. The point that I want you to see, Joseph was 17 when he first started having the dreams, when we first started hearing anything about him having the dreams. Now we're about, um, uh, what, uh, 11 years later. He's in his late 20s. It's two years before he's elevated to, to, uh, to be prime minister of Egypt at age 30. So he's about 28 years old. And at this point in time, he's still looking at the injustice done unto him. Now, rightly so. I don't have a problem with that, but I want you to see how he changes. I want you to see from the from this point, when he's about 28, to what happens when he is 30 or 32. 
in the next few years, there is going to be a huge, huge change made in Joseph. Now, folks, I would submit to you that Joseph has every right to be upset and turn away from God and say, forget it. I mean, that's the severity of the things that have been done against him, in my opinion. I feel pretty confident that I'm not going to get a whole lot of disagreement on that. I'm not suggesting that's what he should have done by any means. But we would certainly understand it if he did, wouldn't we? If we put ourselves in this position, and here's here's one of the reasons I have a problem with Joseph, I'm not sure I'd have stayed steady. I'm not sure after 11 or 12 years in the prison that I would be in a position to say, I'm still trusting God here. Because so often we trust God with the thing, with the idea in our mind that it's not going to take long. And then when it starts taking long, we think, well, it won't take much longer. And so we stretch it out a day or a, a day more and a day more and a week more and a month more and stuff like that. If we know going in, we're going to have a 12 or 13 or 14 or 15 year period. Are you going to sign up for that? You should. Please don't misunderstand me. You should. All of us should. But thinking of it in those terms makes it a little different, doesn't it? If you knew that believing God was going to take you 15 years to receive your healing, what would you do? It's a good question, isn't it? I mean, because as far as I'm concerned, I can only answer it for myself. As far as I'm concerned, I would say, wow, that's a long time. I don't want it to take that long. But then I'd stop and I'd say, but what's my alternative? I know the Bible is true. I know there is a heaven. I know there's a hell. I know serving God is the way to be blessed in life. So, yeah, okay, I will. But I wouldn't be happy about it. The Bible says if you'd be willing and obedient, you'd eat the good of the land. I'm not sure that I'd be real willing about being obedient there. Sometimes things happen in different ways than we expect them to. Has your life turned out the way you thought it would? Has everything about your life and everything about you serving God turned out just the way you thought Folks, i got to tell you, the church has not turned out the way I thought it would. It took us a lot longer to get to certain places than it should have, in my opinion. And when I realized I was the problem, then I have a little bit greater understanding about that. But you understand what I'm saying, I hope. There's a lot of things that all of us can look back on in our lives and say, man, that didn't work out the way that I thought it would. So Joseph just says, remember me. For indeed, verse 15 again, for indeed I was stolen away out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also have I done nothing that they should put me into the dungeon. Well, then it goes. Chapter 41, verse 1, it says, and it came to pass at the end of two full years that Pharaoh dreamed. And behold, he stood by a river. Two more years go by. Now these are two years that, that, uh, what's his name? Joseph has the opportunity to say that lousy butler. Man, I helped him, and look at what he's done. He wouldn't be there if it wasn't for me. And now he forgot me. But Pharaoh dreams a dream, and Pharaoh's having a real hard time with this dream. He dreams two dreams, actually. Turn out to be the same dream, just in two different forms. But he's having a hard time, and finally the butler hears about it, and the, the magicians and the, 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 the advisors and all the people that Pharaoh looks to, nobody can give him an answer. And the butler says, dreams, dreams. Oh, yeah. 
uh, Pharaoh, I, I should have told you about this before, but there's this guy in prison. Which is always where you go for answers. <laughs> there's this guy in prison, and he's got interpretations of dreams, and he can tell you. So they bring Joseph in, and Joseph interprets the dream. The dream is seven years of plenty and eaten up by seven years of famine. And so Joseph comes to the place where he says, gives Pharaoh advice. Verse 33 of chapter 41, he says, Now therefore, let Pharaoh look out a man discreet and wise and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh do this and let him appoint officers over the land and take up the fifth part of the land of Egypt into the seven plenteous years. And let them gather of the food of those good years that come and lay up corn under the hand of Pharaoh and let them keep food in the cities. And all that food shall be of for store to the land against the seven years of famine, which shall be in the land of Egypt, that the land perish not through the famine. Now, Pharaoh winds up picking Joseph to be that guy. But notice what Joseph does not do. He does not have the same attitude that he had about the dreams. He does not say, now I understand the plan of God. Pharaoh, God sent me here to be the ruler. I've had dreams. God has shown me that even my own brothers and sister, or my own brothers and my father and my mother would bow down before me. Now I know what God intended all along. His attitude seems to be different. If he took the same attitude when he was 17 with his brothers that he's taking now with Pharaoh, he might not have had such a conflict with his brothers. So you can certainly see some growth, as you would expect. I mean, I grew a lot between 17 and 30, didn't you? At 17, I knew everything. Then I started learning. I think that's the way it is for most of us. So certainly he has grown, but even in the last two years, he's a different guy. Now he's letting God work it out rather than trying to work things out on his own. Two years go by. Joseph is in charge of all of the land of Egypt. Only in the the throne is uh, Pharaoh greater than him. Two years go by and then his brothers come to him from the land of Canaan. There's no food there. And so his brothers come in. And you remember the story. We won't read a lot of it. A couple of verses I want to pick out. But you remember the story how that his brothers came in and first he made himself unknown to them, made sure that they didn't understand, know who he was. They certainly wouldn't have been expecting to see him. But they, he made sure that they didn't know who he was and he accused them of being spies. And he dealt with them real roughly. And so he, he winds up letting them go back to their father. And, uh, but he keeps one brother back. He keeps Simeon back. And he puts the money back in, he has the servants put the money back in the bags so that when they finally get back home, they open the, the bags, they've got the corn that they went to buy, but then their money is back in there too. And they think, oh man, we are really, really in trouble now because this guy's going to think we stole it and we didn't have anything to do with this. What in the world is going on? Now, I want you to read a couple of verses with me. It says uh, um, part of the, the deal that Joseph made was he was going to keep Simeon, hold back one of his brothers so that he would bring... Uh, the youngest brother that told him about Benjamin, which was his real brother. And so it says, uh, beginning in verse 20, Genesis chapter 42, beginning in verse 20. Here's the deal. Well, let's back up in, uh, in verse 19. He says, if you be true men, not spies, in other words, let one of your brethren be bound in the house of your prison. Go ye, carry corn for the famine of your houses. But bring your youngest brother unto me, so shall your words be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. 
And they, here's the brothers speaking to each other, and they said one to another, we are verily guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us and we would not hear. Therefore is this distress come upon us. That's when they threw him into the pit and he was begging them to let him out. They said, this has all come upon us because we wouldn't listen to our younger brother. And Reuben answered and said, Spake I not unto you, saying, Do not sin against the child, and you would not hear? Therefore, behold, all his blood is required. Also his blood is required. Here's Reuben trying to trying to say, I told you so, I told you so. I tried to keep you guys from doing this, and you all sold him when I was away. And they knew not, verse 23, they knew not that Joseph understood them, for he spake unto them by an interpreter. And he turned himself about from them and wept, and returned to them again and communed with them, and took from them Simeon and bound them before their eyes. Now, folks, I want you to see something about forgiveness. Here's what real forgiveness is. I doubt very seriously if several years, as as soon as several years before, Joseph would have had the same magnanimous spirit. I doubt that he would have taken the same position of not pressing against them rigorously to judge them for their actions, even though he had a right to. If they had come and found him in prison, I doubt that he would have had the same attitude that he had now. So there's something that's changed in him. God's done a work in Joseph that's remarkable. Because he is not, even though he's testing them to see what kind of men they are, and that's what the Bible says, that that's why he did all these things, went through all these different um, you know, schemes and stuff like that with them. He's not trying to punish them. He's just trying to identify what kind of men are these. Have they forgotten what they did to me? Is this something that they recall? Is this something they recognize their sin? Would they do it again with one of their other brothers? They're trying to, he's trying to identify who they are, but he's not trying to punish them for what they did. Here's an example of perfect love. So they go back, and when they get home, they find out the the money's in their bags as well. And so they say, oh, my goodness, here we were. We're supposed to go right home, drop the food off, turn around, bring Benjamin back, and then everything would be all right. But but their father, Jacob, wouldn't let them go back. He said, no, you've already cost me two sons. Joseph's dead. Now Simeon's taken. He's being held prisoner in Egypt. I'm not going to let you take my, my Benjamin. He's my favorite since Joseph is gone. He's the youngest. So I'm not going to let you go back. So they stay at home until the food runs out. And then they have to go back because they're the only, Egypt's the only place there's food. So they talk their father into finally doing it. The different brothers say, I'll make a pledge. Kill my sons if, if Benjamin doesn't come back. Like that's going to help anything. And then Judah says, my family will be your servants forever if we don't come back. Like that's going to help anything. Finally, they take Benjamin. Now you remember the story. They get to they get back to the palace. One of the brothers said, if we hadn't waited, we could have already been back, taken Benjamin back and already been back for good by now. But it says that when they took Benjamin in, Joseph treats Benjamin very well. And he says, okay, this is great. You guys uh, told the truth about your brother and, and so forth. And, uh, and so they, he has a great big feast for him. And then he sends him away. But then you remember he puts the cup, the, the silver cup or whatever it was, in Benjamin's sack. And so it, the, his uh, servants overtake the caravan on their way out from the, the palace and say, which one of you stole the silver cup? And all the brothers said, no, not us, not us. We're innocent. If, we're, if you found the cup with us, then we would be your servants forever, and the person that stole it should be worthy of death. So Joseph says, okay, we'll do it your way. 
and they find it in Benjamin's sack. Now the guys are in real distress because they've made pledges of their own families and so forth regarding Benjamin. And so it says that they come before Joseph and, and verse 40 or chapter 45 is what I want you to, to really see now. After Joseph has questioned them and, and they're making all kinds of deals and saying, you know, take me, but send Benjamin home because my father, we can't, it'll kill our father if we, if, uh, if Benjamin is lost and so forth. Totally different attitude now than they had some 13 years before too, right? Chapter 45, verse one, then Joseph could not refrain himself before all of them that stood by him. And he cried, cause every man to go out from me. And there stood no man with him while Joseph made himself known unto his brethren. And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians and all the house of Pharaoh heard. And Joseph said unto his brethren, I am Joseph. Does my father yet live? And his brethren could not answer him, for they were troubled. Literally, the word is terrified at his presence. Now, all this stuff's been going on. These guys have been going back and forth from favor into trouble in Joseph's house. And finally, Joseph says, I'm Joseph. And they look at each other and say, oh, snap. <laughs> because up to this point, it's just been these things have come upon us because of our own actions, because of the things that we did against Joseph. Now this is Joseph. And it's like, oh, brother, he's going to kill us. Let me show you what true forgiveness does. True forgiveness doesn't try to intimidate. True forgiveness doesn't try to exact revenge. They're terrified. They can't even answer. Joseph, this is you. And Joseph said unto his brethren, come near to me and I pray you. And they came near and he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. Now, therefore, be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that you sold me hither, for God did send me before you to preserve life. Here's forgiveness, folks. Here's the example of forgiveness, us forgiving others as God for Christ's sake has forgiven us. These guys have not, they don't even have time to say, Joseph, we're really sorry about what we did. He's not looking for him to do it. He doesn't stand there as the ruler of Egypt and say, what do you have to say for yourself now? We could fill this room with soldiers. Then what? None of that. He says, don't be upset with yourselves. Because God had a plan in this. God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years has the famine been in the land. That means Joseph has been in charge for two years. Or maybe a little bit more than two. And yet there are five years in which there shall be neither earring nor harvest. I just messed up on the math. He's been in charge for seven years plus two years of the famine plus maybe a year before it took place. So he's been in charge of, uh, of Egypt for about 10 years. So at this point, he would be, what, almost 40 years old? Verse 7, And God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth to save your lives by great deliverance. So now that it was not you that sent me hither, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and the Lord of all of his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Haste ye and go up to my father and say. Now here's where it gets interesting. He does not ask them, what did you ever tell daddy about me? 
He does not tell them, go to Joseph or go to, to Jacob and tell them what evil you did all those years ago. He doesn't do anything. He says, go tell dad this. God's made me ruler of Egypt. I've got a place for you. I've got a land for you and your servants and all of those that you have with you to live. I'll take care of you. That's all he tells them to tell him. That's what true forgiveness does, folks. True forgiveness is not only not trying to get back at them. True forgiveness doesn't even try to reveal or expose what wrong was done. You remember in, uh, in John chapter 20, uh, after the crucifixion, Jesus is raised from the dead and Jesus appears in the midst of them. They're behind closed doors. The Bible says that they're behind closed doors for fear of the Jews. Remember the story? And Jesus appears to them and says, I can't believe you deserted me at the cross. No, he doesn't. He doesn't say, you know, God had a plan for you, but you guys ran away and did me wrong. He appears before them and says, peace be unto you. Receive the Holy Ghost. Then he commissions them to go out. Whosoever your sins you remit, they shall be remitted. Whosoever sins you retain, they shall be retained. He's giving them commission to go preach the good news unto the remission of sins. True forgiveness, the way that Jesus forgave us, is that he doesn't even remind us of what we did wrong. It's not even a requirement for us to fall down on our face and grovel and say how bad we were in what we did. So if we're going to forgive as others forgive others as Christ forgave us, that means we're going to have to follow the same example. Joseph is a great example for us to follow, and he didn't even have the Holy Ghost in him. Now here's something else about this. They wind up living out their lives. Chapter 50 tells us about how that uh, at the end of uh, uh, Jacob's life, he lays hands on Joseph's children and, and prays over them and so forth. And then they, he dies and they wind up burying him. Chapter 50 tells us something about the, uh, uh, about the brothers. Um, verse 14, it says, And Joseph returned into Egypt, he and his brethren, and all that went up with him to bury his father after that he had buried his father. And when Joseph's brethren saw that their father was dead, they said, Joseph will peradventure hate us and will certainly requite us all the evil which we did unto him. And they sent a messenger. Now, this is about 15 years beyond. They've been living there for about 15 or so years, maybe even more than that. And the, and the brothers are still living under the guilt of what they did. And they sent a messenger unto Joseph saying, Your father did command before he died, saying, So shall you say unto Joseph, Forgive, I pray thee now, the trespasses of thy brethren and their sin, for they did unto the evil, and now we pray thee, forgive the trespasses of the servants of the God of thy father. And Joseph wept when they said that unto him. And his brethren also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we be thy servants. And Joseph said unto them, Don't be afraid, for am I in the place of God? Is it up to me to judge you? Folks, here's what real forgiveness does. Number one, forgiveness is forever. And secondly, forgiveness doesn't try to take God's place. Forgiveness relinquishes the right to punish. But as for you, verse 20, but as for you, you thought evil against me. But God meant it unto good to bring it to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. Now, therefore, fear ye not, I will nourish you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spake kindly unto them. So many times you hear husbands and wives say, 
they'll get in an argument about something. He'll say uh, to her or she'll say to him, well, I thought you forgave me of that. And she said, I did, but that was yesterday. <laughs> Real forgiveness is forever. Real forgiveness is a decision that it's done, it's gone, it's over. Notice who's not being held back by this situation. Joseph's the one that's free. He's got, he's the one that has the right, every right to hold a problem, hold the grudge against his brothers. He has every right to exact judgment on his brothers. And his brothers lie about it. His brothers try to tell him through a servant, here's what daddy wanted. Here's what daddy told us. Well, that's a lie. If his father had wanted him to do that, his father would have said that to him, not through a servant. And certainly not to his brothers. Joseph knows this is a lie. So my point is simply this. The one who's free is the one that forgives. The one who's free is always the one who forgives. But I can hear it. I can hear people say, yeah, but Pastor Mike, you don't understand. I know. And that's the problem, isn't it? Somebody doesn't understand. So what do we do? We have to tell them. We have to negate our own well-being by telling somebody because we think if they understand what a right we have to hold unforgiveness against them, then they'll understand. Well, folks, let's just all understand. I understand that you've got a right to hold a grudge against anybody you want to. Whether it's a little thing or a big thing, sure, you've got a right. Nobody's commanding you to forgive. God doesn't even do it. It's your choice. But the issue is this. The issue is not whether or not the person that did you wrong will be free. The issue is whether or not you will be free. Because trust me, the people you're holding a grudge against, they're not bothered by your grudge. In most cases, as we said, they don't even know they did anything wrong to you. And even if they do admit that they did something, it's not as bad as they're not going to admit that it's as bad as what you say that it is. So you're not holding them back. You're not causing them a problem at all. You're only causing a problem for yourself. The bitterness is poisoning your life, not theirs. Now, this is easier said than done because we've got some terrible, terrible situations in society. You've got cases of rape. You've got cases of incest. You've got cases of abuse. Well, shouldn't justice be served in those situations? I believe they should. But there's a difference between the society's justice and what we as Christians are commanded to do. I've seen so many people that never, ever, ever escape being a victim of some tragedy like rape or abuse or something like that. They live the rest of their lives and their lives are defined from that point forward by that one event. Doesn't have to be that way. Now, folks, I'm not saying it's easy. Because you're going to have to struggle with your feelings. You're going to make the decision and those feelings are going to rise up. You're going to make the decision, I will forgive. I choose to walk in love. I choose to set this aside. Paul said, one thing Paul said about his past, he says, this one thing I do, forgetting those things are behind. That's the only thing the Bible says about your past. By the Holy Ghost, Paul said, forget it. Man, that's tough. Because some of those things we don't want to forget because we feel some kind of sense of comfort by reliving it and knowing somebody did us wrong. But again, the reality is it's poisoning your life, not somebody else's life. 
Be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Aren't you glad God doesn't remind you of the stuff you did? Aren't you glad you don't go to prayer sometimes and then the Lord speaks back to you and says, well, I, I, I know, I want you to know that you're forgiven, but do you remember what I forgave you of? Man, that'd get pretty tough, wouldn't it? God never exposes you. He never reveals your secrets. The devil will try to. The devil will try to expose you. But if you get it under the blood, God will protect you. And that's part of the forgiveness that we're supposed to show to other people. You can't keep things the way they're supposed to be by telling everybody in town how somebody mistreated you. You can't do it. It's part of letting it go. You just can't do it. There's a, let me close with this. Sometimes it's easier for us to forgive what people have done to us instead of what they've done to our loved ones. Any of you remember hearing about the, about uh, Corey Tinboon? You remember who she was? Well, for the young people that don't know, let me real quickly tell you who she was. Back in World War II, she and her sister lived in uh, Holland, which was occupied by the Germans. And the Germans were in there, um, searching out for the Jews and captain in slaving them and putting them in concentration camps and so forth. Corey Ten Moon and her sister hid the Jews. Every time they'd find somebody that was of Jewish descent, they would hide them and try to get them out of the, the city or out of the country or whatever it was and, and saved a lot of people. But over the course of time, her and her sister was, were found out, discovered by the Jews, and so they were put in a concentration camp. Well, her sister uh, died in the concentration camp. There was a situation where one of the guards was especially mean to um, uh, to the sister and beat her savagely, and then the sister died as a result of that beating. Well, fast forward several years, and, and World War II is over, and Corey Ten Boone is, is ministering, and she's in a certain place, and she looks out in the congregation, and she sees this guard. She sees this, this German concentration camp guard in the in the prison. That was, that was in the prison. He's in the, he's in the congregation of the church. Sitting there. She's about to minister. Now, I've had a few minor things to deal with before I preach, but I can't imagine that. Really, I can't imagine that. So she's struggling with her emotions. She's struggling with the whole situation. So finally she deals with it, gets through the service. And then this guy comes over. He doesn't, she doesn't know if he remembers her. He doesn't know, or I'm sorry, she doesn't know um, if if he's going to have the same recollection that she has. And, and you can well understand, for her, it's vivid. It's like it happened yesterday. Especially seeing somebody in a situation like that is going to stir up a lot of old feelings and memories and so forth. But she doesn't know where he's coming from. She doesn't know where he's at. But she's thinking, her first thought is, God, how could you forgive him? He's in the church. She assumes that he's born again. She assumes that he's saved, that he's turned his life around. But God, how could you forgive something like that? So she's standing there. She makes no attempt to see him or get close to him or anything like that. But he comes up. He makes a beeline to her for the, after the service is over. He comes to her, reaches out his hand. She forces herself to shake his hand. And then he says, isn't it good to know that God's forgiven us? And she said, he said it so casually 
that it stirred everything up for me again. It wasn't, I'm so sorry for the things that I did. It wasn't, I remember your sister and I'm so guilty of what happened to her. He doesn't ask her for forgiveness. He doesn't do anything. He just kind of casually says, isn't it good to know God's forgiveness? Like he's forgiven you for the same things he's forgiven me when he's responsible for killing her, her sister. She went home. There was a morning service. They were going to have an evening service. She went back to the hotel, wherever it was she was staying. She said, I've never had such a struggle in my life. She said, now, what's interesting is he did things against me in the concentration camp. And she said, I didn't even remember those things. Those things are easily forgiven, she said. But what he did to my sister, how am I ever going to forgive? And she said she spent all day long, all afternoon praying, talking to God about this. How am I ever going to get get over this? How am I ever going to get around this? How can I minister knowing that he's coming back? How this, how that? You can imagine the questions and the emotions that she'd be feeling. At least I can imagine the ones I'd be feeling. And she said the Lord spoke to her. Ephesians chapter 4, 4 verse 32. But be ye kind one to another. Tenderhearted. Forgiving one another even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. That's all she got, folks. That's all the instructions she had. Now, I can't imagine something more difficult to forgive than that. It's a whole lot easier for me to forgive people that speak against me than people that work against my kids. You come against me, okay, I know how to handle that. You come against my kids or my family, what do you do? But the instruction is the same. The instruction for us as Christians is the same. And that is to forgive in the same way that God forgave you. Do you realize that God didn't wait for you to ask for forgiveness before he forgave you? Do you realize it wasn't a matter of you realizing how bad the things that you did? Even even the simplest sin would have been enough to sentence you to hell. He didn't require you to, 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 to recognize or confess or bemoan your unrighteousness before Jesus shed his blood for your righteousness. That's what that forgiveness means, folks. It means not holding anything against you. It means not making you pay the price to get it. It means not making you grovel. It means not making you say the right things or have the right attitude or anything like that. It's just a free gift. Forgiveness is a free gift. And not everybody's willing to give that. But it's the only way you're ever going to be free in your life. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the love of God that's shed abroad in our heart. Thank you that we don't have to find this forgiveness, Father. It's already there because it's part of your love. Thank you, Father, that we have the capacity. We have the ability to forgive others just like you have forgiven us. We have the ability to not hold other sins against them. We have the ability to cover those wrongs that have taken place. We have the ability, Father, to not allow bitterness, poison, to become a part of our lives. Forgive us, Father, where we said we can't forgive because what we really meant was we won't. We know we can, Father, because your love is shed abroad in our heart. 
Help us, Father, to perfect that love by not looking for punishment against those who have wronged us. Father, right now, I pray that those that are in this congregation, under the sound of my voice, that are holding unforgiveness against others, would take that first step and say within them, I choose to forgive. No matter how I feel, no matter what thoughts I have, I choose to forgive. I choose to relinquish my right to punish them any longer. I refuse to speak about it. I refuse to press that wrong against them. Thank you, Father, that your love and your forgiveness frees us so that the Holy Spirit can work freely in our lives. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let's all stand together. Forgiveness is very rarely a one-moment experience. It begins in a moment, but it's something, especially if that which has been done against you has been held on to for a long time, if it's already taken root, it's something you're going to have to determine and decide again and again and again. But I pray that this would be a beginning point for some. It's not worth poisoning your own life for things that you can't change. And you can't change what other people have done to you. The only thing you can do is choose to be free. And that's what forgiveness does. Forgiveness is a, is a choice to be free from whatever has been done. Amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being a part of us. Come on back and be with us tonight if you can. And you're dismissed.